poems based on public holidays and other significant days in our history are included in Pistols, the ninth collection by Janet Charman. There are also deeply personal works touching on the death of her partner of 40 years and many poems looking back to her childhood and her parents. But the winner of the 2008 Montana Book Award for Poetry also looks unflinchingly into the future. Janet Charman reads one of her poems from Pistols. Clickety-click, leaning into my dream of prostitution, choosing the garments of allure for my first assignation, when the realisation comes that one breast might not be enough. And after all, I'm 66. Spare me, dear reader, your knowing wink, that women's disfigurement can be men's entertainment. Janet, I should know better after all these years of interviewing poets, including yourself, but I, I have taken this work as very autobiographical. Am I right to do so? I guess so, yes. I think I'd have to agree to that. There's some work about uh, childhood, you know, going back to primary school years and sampling a bit of intermediate school. It sort of ranges around the country a bit to the different places that I've either lived or holidayed. So it's sort of geographically diverse. It takes into account recent events in my life with the death of my partner of 40 years, Max White. So that was quite, as you can imagine, a challenging thing to experience. And it, it sort of really crosses over the whole the whole arc, life arc, I suppose, to, to the age of 66, which I, hello, wait a minute, I'm nearly 68, what am I saying? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's broad in that sense, yes. Those poems about losing your partner, that's, that's a lot to share with people who, who don't know you, who don't know Max. But why was it important to you and did it help you to try and find the words for that kind of grief that most of us struggle to articulate? There's only a few poems that relate specifically to that. So I wouldn't say I processed Max's loss to any great extent at this stage. But what I find with poetry is that I just write it when I'm in the moment. So I'm not really thinking in a in a analytical sense about what I'm putting down. I just go ahead intuitively and write it. So that's that's probably quite a protective device. My rule of thumb is just write it down, get it down. And then I can have my existential crisis about what's on the page later. The whole idea of the personal embargo comes in there. Often people will say to me, I'd like to write about X or Y, but oh no, the family wouldn't like it, or my ex wouldn't like it, or my children wouldn't like it, or, you know. But I just say to them, well, just write it anyway, and then just put it into, you know, an envelope and tuck it somewhere quietly in the back of beyond. And at least then it will be it'll be there. And if you change your mind at some future time, you can bring it out. I adored your poems about your parents, and there are lots about them in your memories of you and um, your, your siblings being too bored to wait to watch the coronation film that your mum really wanted to watch in the Queen's birthday poem. But, I mean, you mentioned before, you know, it can be hard for writers if they think about how... the people they're writing about would feel. How do you think your parents would feel about the works? I find them very loving. 
Oh, I'm glad you said that. I hope they'd feel like that. For, you know, this is my ninth collection, so Mum and Dad had sort of seen, you know, a few things that if it had given them pause, they'd dealt with it. I think for me the indicator that they'd come to terms with me writing things was that my first books were in a bookcase in the garage and then one day I went home and they were stacked up on top of the television set in the living room. So I felt that um, if they had any ambivalence, they'd come to terms with it and they weren't offended or upset by what I had to say. You have such clear memories of childhood. I'm dreadful. I can't remember a jolly thing. I guess the narrative structure takes over to some extent. That thing, poet's license, sometimes I think that should be rephrased as poet's lies. I I don't worry too much about whether it might be true or untrue. I just get it down to, to the best of my ability when I'm writing something. And I try not to censor it at the time. I don't try not to censor it at all. I think sometimes a first-person narrative is in itself a kind of guiding censorship because if you write I, you do have to assume that the reader will think that one is referring to oneself. But in fact, that I may not be me, but it ends up that if I write I, this, I, that, I have to be prepared for the reader to think it is me, and that that operates as a kind of integrity rule, you know, that if I'm saying it about someone else, I have to be prepared for people to think that that it's about me. Well, that brings me to selfie, and I I see this as a a literary selfie, a a word-rich description of yourself in front of the mirror. That's how I picture it. What's the story behind selfie? I guess I see all these beautiful young people with their cameras, phones up, smiling into the screen. And I'm a late adopter as far as phones are concerned, I have to admit. And I just thought, well, now, what would be the selfie I would write? What would I have to say? You know, and it's it's that thing of, uh, you know, the transience of youth, which one isn't at all aware of at the time. And um, just whether or not those selfies that you might take when you're 13 and 19 and 27, how will those people be feeling taking a selfie when they're 54 and 64 and 94? What will be comprised of that experience, that visual text, when they're being influencers? in those age, Maybe there are, I mean, I'm not on social media really, so I don't know. Maybe there are some 94-year-olds out there taking selfies and it's a whole different genre of which I'm unaware, but that was why I wanted to establish that possibility of a late-life narcissist. <laughs> Early in the collection, you've got a whole stream of poems about public holidays and other days we think about Easter, New Year, Um, Matariki, I did specifically want to ask you about Waitangi Day. I felt that was a very strong poem. I wrote that after I'd applied for a a job, which I didn't get. I didn't get an interview either. But I adopted some of the language from the advertisement for that poem, found language from the advertisement, 
and just contextualized it in the way that Max and I and our two little kids at that time had actually celebrated that anniversary by climbing up those mountains in Tamaki Makoto. And um, I can't say I understand all of that poem myself, to be honest, but it's just how it emerged and I quite like it too. That first line, yes, I do understand the principles of te tirite o waitangi. I've said that to myself in several different voices, you know, angry and fist-shaking and then also quite gentle. Yes, I think for the purposes of the job application, I was asserting it confidently and um, in a positive self-portrayal for an interviewer. But I think perhaps as the poem unfolds, a little bit more uncertainty might evolve. The way we all respond to the Tiriti o Waitangi, it has to come down to a personal relationship at some point with the premises and and aspirations of that document. And so I think there is a point where everybody's individual biographical situation and their own values and their own uncertainties or belief systems begin to feature an adjacency with Te Tiriti o Waitangi. I was reading your poem Tolaga Bay at the time of the, of the flooding. Your, your mum, you say in the poem, so I better ask you if it's true, was sole charge midwife there. Yes, she was. Um, not for long. She had this I think it was about three months where she was seconded from Gisborne to Tolaga Bay. She was did have that opportunity, and she always spoke about it afterwards as one of the absolute highlights of her life. She loved the, you know, the remote but extraordinarily beautiful surroundings. She loved her patients, and I sometimes think, you know, if she'd met Mr. Wright, maybe. <laughs> Maybe she would never have left, but it was not to be. War memorials, of course, are really emotional places, uh, but the story told in your poem about the war memorial at Kohokoho, is that based on a true story? It is. Not really mine to tell, but yes, it is. It's borrowed, is it? Yes, yes. It, someone I know was there with me, and and I was just so shocked re- reading the names of the memorial and families who had lost brothers, you know, two or three brothers from one family. I mean, it's just heart-rending to read. And we were just sitting down the end of the um, jetty in this terrible rainstorm. And she just, that's, this, my, my friend just said to me, well, you know, there are other things that happen in war that are, often we don't see those memorialised. And then she told me this, So I wanted to honour her experience and goodness knows here we have the most extraordinary things happening in Ukraine and the Yazidi in um, Syria and so I think there are, are the unmentionable things that the official histories don't like to take into account and I think it is important that particularly women give voice to those because often we are the the victims of those kinds of um, attacks. I want to look at the the title, 
of the collection, pistols, P-I-S-T-I-L-S, in case people are thinking firearms. What's, what's behind the name? Well, the pistols, that's the female sexual parts of the flower. And um, I suppose, you know, we have the sex pistols, P-I-S-T-O-L-S, and I just thought, well, look, I think I'll reclaim that in, in, a, feminine, in a female sense for this collection. Um, it's sort of a confronting word, and um, I guess if we, if we have it with that punning context, but I'm kind of affirming the female, I'm affirming women's voices and women's roles, both socially, reproductively, economically, any, any way one might like to acknowledge them. And Janet, to finish, did you really get trespassed from a neighbouring fast food shop? Threatened. Ah, <laughs> threatened with. Threatened with. I have to tell you that that business is no longer there. There is another business there, so it, already the the waves have closed over particular details there, but I'm glad I acknowledged it. Janet Charman, Pistols is published by Otago University Press, and the full interview is going up on our webpage.